0: Well, if you uh, are a guest of ours, uh, we've been in a series since the end of November through December called Last King Standing. And throughout this series, we've been talking about kingdoms and empires, and specifically the kings who sat on the thrones over those kingdoms and empires. And we're talking about the fact that what happened in their time, in real time, ultimately became the stories of history. Uh, Those are the stories that you studied in high school, in college, Uh, perhaps those are the stories that you still Loved to read on into adulthood. But what happened in their time in real time became what we call history. And out of the stories of history, ultimately, the story of Christmas was birthed. And the reason that that's so important is it reminds us that Christmas was never intended to be a standalone story. But yet, that's how we present it every year this time of year. We tell the story beginning with shepherds, beginning with Mary and Joseph and some wise men. And we tell that story as though it is just just a complete story, but that's not Christmas at all. The story of Christmas was always intended to be seen and be told in the context of a larger story because the story of Christmas is anchored to and rooted in the stories of history. Matter of fact, it goes back 2,000 years before Bethlehem to a guy by the name of who we call Abraham, but in those days he was known as Abram and God showed up in the life of Abram and he whispered to him perhaps what is the greatest of all the Christmas promises because this Christmas promise we can track history through for the next few thousand years and so God showed up to Abram and this is what he said he says Abram I will make you into a great nation that's the Jewish nation and that absolutely happened As a matter of fact Abraham became the father of many nations just not the Jewish nation I will make you into a great nation and I I will bless you. If you are a father of a nation, I think you have been blessed, right? I mean, if if you can claim that you fathered a nation, go big guy. All right. So God blessed him. I will make your name great because you've heard of Abraham before and you will be a blessing. And all peoples, this is where it, it is so profound. But when God said this to Abraham, think about it for just a moment. When God spoke these words to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus showed up on the planet, this, possible, this, this promise seemed unreasonable. This promise seemed impossible, right? He says, all peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. It's gonna be blessed because of you, Abraham. And so, this is the story of Israel. This is how the nation of Israel began. It began with a promise to a guy by the name of Abraham. And so, we've been tracking over the past few weeks the story of Israel. And the story of Israel is filled with many sentinel events. Uh, the promise to Abraham absolutely became true, they became a nation. And then, in 1050 BC, they became. A kingdom. But in 120 years after they became a kingdom, in around 930 BC, the kingdom split in civil war. And so there was a northern kingdom, and then there was a southern kingdom. And by the year 730-something, uh, the northern kingdom was obliterated. They were wiped off the face of the map, never to be heard from again. They would never exist again. So it seemed like the promise to Abraham when the Assyrians destroyed the northern empire, it seemed as though the promise to Abraham seemed to be, an impossible scenario. But people held out hope because there was still the southern kingdom of Judah. But as we talked about in the first few weeks of this series, in 538 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led the world empire powerhouse, the Babylonians. They came to town. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls around the city. They killed thousands, left thousands behind to be homeless and in hunger. And they took thousands away into captivity. And in that moment, they didn't really realize it, but in that moment, the last Jewish king sat upon the throne, a guy by the name of King Zedekiah, and King Zedekiah was a descendant of David, and he was the last descendant of David that would sit upon a Jewish throne, and so that was a big event, thousands dead, thousands living in famine and squalor, and thousands taken away as captives to Babylon. But a few years later, a few decades later, about 70 years later, there's another empire that comes on the world scene. It's a group of people by the name of the Persians. And the Persians, they knock off the Babylonians as the world's dominant empire. And a guy by the name of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great made a decision. He made a declaration that he was gonna allow all the Jewish people that had been taken captive to go back to their homelands. And this is such a big deal as it relates to Christmas because this allowed the Jewish people to rebuild a temple. This allowed the Jewish people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and it allowed them to settle back into the land. The reason that there were people living in the land of Israel in the days when Jesus was born was because of a guy by the name of Cyrus the Great. He allowed the people to come back. a couple hundred years after Cyrus, there's another empire that steps onto the world scene. It's the Greeks. It's the Grecian empire led by Alexander the Great. And this happened somewhere around 330 BC. So, you know, 300 plus years before Jesus shows up on the planet. Here's Alexander, his one dream. And this is, this is so important again, as we wrap up this whole idea here on Christmas Eve. Alexander's one dream was to import Greek thought into all the lands that he conquered. He wanted to Hellenize the world. That is take Greek philosophy, Greek culture, Greek language, Greek architecture, and he wanted to import it into all the people that he conquered, and he did that. Even in Israel, he began to Hellenize the Jewish people and he began to import Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek influence in all the lands that he conquered and even in the land of Israel. Once Alexander died and his generals took over, there were about 25 to 28 different power shifts in Israel over the next couple of hundred years. And this is a big deal because all throughout this time, it's chaotic. All throughout this time, there's a lot of bloodshed, there's a lot of infighting, there's a lot of civil war, there's a lot of tribal conflict. All the while, if you were Jewish, can you imagine how far-fetched the promise that God had made 2000 years before seemed in those days? There was no king on the throne from the family of David. So how could God's promise to Abraham and David ever come true? God had promised David that one of his sons would sit upon the throne over a kingdom that would never end. But yet, if you are a Jewish person living in the decades and the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth, how far away do you think that promise felt? And how confident would you have been that God was going to remember that 2,000-year-old promise? I think if you're anything like me and if you're anything like them, because we're all pretty much the same, you would have doubted and perhaps you would have lost faith in the promise that God had made to Abraham that one day God was going to send a savior. You would have lost faith in the promise that God made to David that one day a king would come and establish peace over the entire earth. Those promises seem so far-fetched. It didn't even seem like a thinking person could believe such a thing. Now, this all culminates and brings us to the era of the New Testament, somewhere around 63 B.C. And in 63 B.C., somewhere around 60 or so years, maybe 58 years before Jesus is born, around 50 plus years before Jesus is born, there's another big event, which helps us understand the context of the Christmas story. There is a general by the name of Pompey the Great. Pompey the Great is a friend to Julius Caesar. And Pompey is leading one of the legions of Rome. And he comes to Jerusalem, and he conquers Jerusalem in the name of Rome. But not only did he conquer Jerusalem and Palestine in the name of Rome. Tacitus, a historian, tells us that he took his horse, and he rode up what would have been the southern steps to the temple. And he went up, and he's not Jewish, he's a Gentile. He went up into the Jewish temple. And not only did he go to the outer courts where the Gentiles were allowed to go, but he took his horse, and he went to the holy place That was the place where only the priests were allowed to go. And it was an act of blasphemy. He had already slaughtered about 13,000 people in the streets on his way to the temple mount. When he stepped foot in the holy place in the Jewish temple, many of the priests, according to history, killed themselves in that moment because this was an act of blasphemy against God and they thought it'd be better dead than watch what was about to happen next. Then Pompey did the unthinkable in every Jewish heart and mind. Not only did he go into the holy place, but then he proceeded to pull back the curtain or the veil which separated the holy place from the holies of holies, the most holy place. And if you were a Jewish person, you had been taught all of your life that God dwelt in the most holy place. That God dwelt in the holiest of holies. And you were taught from the days of Moses for well over 1400 years the Jewish people had been taught only one man can go into the holies of holies. On one day of. the high priest on the day of atonement. And if anybody else goes into the most holy place, then they would die, God would kill them. That's what they'd been told all of their life, but here's what happened. Pompey walked into the most holy place and Tacitus tells us that he looked around and he came back out and he chuckled and he says, there's no one back there. And in that moment, shockwaves were felt. Throughout the faith of the Jewish people. It was like a myth to many of them. In that moment what they had been told was true. Seemingly was not true. What they thought was reality. Seemed to be not reality. The promise to Abraham. That they were going to be a great nation. And that one day what the prophets had said. That one day all the world would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That all just seemed laughable. Because they had been lied to. It seems to be that their faith has been disproven That now at this point after a Gentile walked into the holiest of holies a Roman no doubt To beat all a Roman walked in there and nothing happened to him And he says there's nothing back there And in that moment many people in the Jewish faith began to leave their faith Many people they traditionally named themselves Jewish But they did not possess a genuine faith that God was ever going to keep his promise to abraham that god was ever going to keep his promise to david that god would ever keep the promise of the prophets so in 63 bc a lot of people began to walk away this is how the old testament ends and this is how the new testament begins in a day where many people had stopped believing that god was ever going to send a savior that god was ever going to send a messiah because circumstances led them to believe something entirely different. Circumstances scream to them, it's silly. Why would you ever believe such a thing? What kind of thinking person could ever believe something that was thousands of years old? And besides that, it seems like everything we've been told has been proven not to be true. A man just walked into the place where God was supposed to dwell, but he lived tell about it. That was the framework in which the New Testament begins. And when Luke writes his story of Christmas, he writes it within the context of that historical framework. And when Luke wrote his gospel in the first century, People understood the backdrop from which it was written. They understood the culture. They understood the history. Many times we don't, and we read the Christmas story, and it's a bit impotent to us because we don't understand the full weight of the context of what had happened. So this is how Luke begins his Christmas story. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, I just wanna stop here for just a moment because when he wrote about Caesar Augustus, everybody in the world knew who he was talking about. Everybody in Palestine in the first century knew exactly who he was talking about. And I want you to notice how Luke writes the Christmas story. He frames it within the context of history. Now, let me take a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Coincidentally, this guy was born the same year that Pompey stormed into Jerusalem. He was born somewhere around 63 BC. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was highly fond of his nephew who was born Gaius Octavian. He was so fond of Guy's Octavian and most people called him Octavian. He was so, so enamored by Octavian, especially after some of his conquests. He, he began to think of his grandnephew as being a masterful uh, administrator. He, he began to see him as this skilled leader. And so he began to revere him. He began to publicly honor him and he began to give him gifts. So his uncle basically Julius Caesar became Octavian his grand biggest fan. And of course from history we talked about a couple of weeks ago in 44 BC Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Roman Senate by Cassius and Brutus and all of that. When Octavian heard that his uncle had been assassinated, he left the battlefield and immediately headed back to Rome. On his way back to Rome, he found out the contents of his uncle's will. And in Julius Caesar's will, he had left all of his titles and all of his belongings to his nephew Octavian, And also, as he made his way back to Rome after his uncle had been killed, Octavian learned that he had been adopted a year earlier by his uncle. And he became the adopted son of Julius Caesar. When Octavian went back to Rome, he teamed up with Mark Antony to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. Mark Antony, you've heard his name before, was married to Octavian's sister, But Mark Antony fell in love with another woman, a queen from Egypt by the name of Cleopatra. So he left Octavian's sister for Cleopatra. How many know that when you are the brother of a woman who has been left hung out to dry by some sad excuse of a man, you don't handle it very well. That was how Octavian felt about Mark Antony. And all of a sudden there was a civil war that broke out for control of the Roman Republic. 31 BC, Octavian defeated Mark Antony at what is known as the Battle of Actium. He transitioned the Roman Republic into a Roman Empire and he became the first Roman Emperor to sit upon the throne. Now, what Luke would know in his day and what the people who would read his gospel knew in his day, perhaps you don't know. A couple of years after Julius Caesar was assassinated in 42 BC, the Roman Senate deified Julius Caesar. They declared him to be a god. When they declared him to be a god, Octavian, who had now received the the title of his father, he was known as Octavian Caesar, he became known as the son of the divine Julius or the son of the divine. Ultimately, In the time of Jesus, when his birthday occurred in Bethlehem, Octavian, who is now Caesar Augustus, he was known as the son of God. That's how he was revered throughout the Roman empire. His title was savior of the world. The Roman Senate had conferred upon him the title Augustus, which meant the sacred one, the majestic one, the holy one. And so here is Caesar Augustus. He's sitting on the throne in Rome. He is known as the savior of the world. He is referred to as the son of a God. And it's in the midst of that historical context. That stuff's not even in the Bible, but right in the midst of history, this is where Luke interjects us into the Christmas story. Caesar Augustus is the chief high priest of his paganistic religion. He's on a mission to unite the empire around paganism, and he's gonna do whatever it takes to do so as the savior of the world, the man who was known in those days as the son of God. So Luke says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, of the entire Roman world. Now, to show you how things don't change, tax reform is not a new idea. Tax reform actually happened for the first time in a big way under caesar augustus up until that time rome had taxed communities but caesar augustus he realized that the empire in order to support itself in order to defend itself and even expand itself it could no longer afford just to tax communities but it also needed to be able to tax individuals and to tax individuals there had to be a numbering of the people so caesar augustus the most powerful man in the world, a man who perhaps had never even read the first lines of Jewish scripture, a man who had no idea about a promised Messiah or the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or the promise made to King David. He makes what seems like a benign decision to reform the tax code. And in doing so, he is going to set in motion a series of events that's going to bring about the very first Christmas And so Luke, he gives us more history. He says, this took place, it was the first census that took place while Serenius was governor of Syria. And as a result of one man's decision, as a result of one man's decree, everyone went to their own town to be registered. And this is the story that you now know. So Joseph, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. The town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. What seemed so inconsequential, what seemed like legislation, what seemed like the decree or the decision of an emperor, because isn't that what emperors do? They make decrees, they make decisions. In a time when no one thought anything about it, at a time in history when he perhaps did what was expected and even did, for him in his context, what was prudent one decision began to line up the chessboard just as God intended for it to be. And Mary and Joseph had to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem, which no coincidence about it was the place that the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be born. And so God is using a pagan emperor known as the savior of the world, known as the son of God to make one stroke of his pen, to send into motion a series of events that bring about Christmas. And for the people who were back in Israel, it didn't feel like God was doing anything. Because here they were again under the oppression of a dominating world empire. And if you were Jewish in the first century, God seemed far away. God didn't seem active. God seemed to have forgotten the promise to Abraham and the promise to David and the promise of the prophets. But little did they know. And so often is true about us as well. Little did they know what God was up to in real time. We look back on it now as history and it all makes sense. But nothing made sense in real time. Because faith in real time is more complicated than faith with hindsight. As the old saying goes, "2020 vision is looking backward. Faith in real time is dramatic. Faith in real time can be discouraging. Faith in real time can be difficult to hold on to. And for the people in those days, it was difficult for them to hold on to their faith because it didn't seem like God was up to anything. And so they went to Bethlehem and it says, while they were there, The time, everybody say the time. The time time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And we've heard this our entire lives. But the enormity of it often misses us. The enormity of this moment when God became flesh. When God dwelt among us, when God come to be with us, to stand beside of us, to prove to us that he loved us and he was for us. This moment right here marked the end of the waiting. For 2,000 years, people had waited for the promise of a savior, a deliverer. For 2,000 years, they had waited for God to keep the promise to Abraham. And in a moment that it seemed most unlikely, in a moment where it seemed as though God had forgotten and most of the people had forgotten because it all seemed like one big fairy tale and one made-up story that had been handed down through the generations. In a moment where most people had lost the wonder of the promise, that is when God kept his promise. They had waited and waited. And this is important. In every generation after Abraham, there was always a remnant. There was always a small minority that chose to have hope even against hope, to believe what seemed to be unbelievable, to believe that the impossible was possible. In every generation leading up to Christmas, there was always a group of people looking and longing and waiting for God to keep His promises. And no matter how bad the circumstances were, and no matter how painful life became, they never gave up on the fact that. God could be trusted and if God said it then it was as good as done they didn't know how they didn't know when but there was always a generation of people who believed even when it seemed as though there was not a good reason to believe so here's a question I think we all ask why did God wait for so long why did God wait 2000 years after Abraham why not promise to Abraham and then bam 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 Let's get this thing going. Let's get the show on the road. Let's do what needs to be done. Why let all that history play out? Why let all of those conflicts play out? Why all of those empires that came and went, why did all of that have to happen? And I think that's what Paul was thinking when Paul wrote about Christmas years after the fact. And this is what Paul said. He says, but when the set time, the appointed time, the determined time. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. And Paul, he looked back on history, and as a Jewish scholar, and as a scholar of his own people's history, I think he began to figure out that God waited for the most appropriate moment. It didn't feel appropriate in real time, but Paul, looking back on it, it made perfect sense why God had waited for this moment in history. In a moment where the people had resettled in the land and rebuilt a temple thanks to a real man and an empire by the name of King Cyrus the Great who led the Persians. When the people had resettled in the land When God had allowed Alexander to Hellenize the known world, when there was a common language, when there was a common culture, when there was a common idea of philosophy in those days, when there was a highway system that connected Rome to the furthest parts of the empire, when there was an effective postal system, thanks To be, thanks all to Caesar Augustus. When there was a highway system, when there was a postal system, when there was a common language, when there was a common culture, when it was easy for God to export the news of the birth of his son, when it was best for God to export the message of grace to the world, that's when God sent his son. And when you read through the book of Acts, and when you read through the pages of the New Testament, The postal service and the men and the highways that carried the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and correspondence between Christians, that was all thanks to the man by the name of Caesar Augustus. In the book of Acts, the story of Jesus after his death, his burial and his resurrection, that left Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, men and women traveled on the highways that Caesar Augustus built. And it made travel easy. The trade routes carried the message of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. And God waited for that moment in history when it was the best possible timing to send his son in the world. And Paul said, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. When there was peace in the land because of the Pax Romana signed by Caesar Augustus, when the urbanization of cities had gone to an entirely new level and population hubs had scattered throughout the entire Mediterranean. That's the reason that Paul in the book of Acts would go from large city to large city to large city to to tell people about a savior who'd been born, who lived and taught, who died, who was buried and raised from the dead. God waited for that moment in history because it was the easiest way to let the world know what had happened. And it reminds us that even when God seems to be missing, God is still working. In those days, it didn't feel like God was working, but God was working. It seemed as though God was silent and God was absent, but he was neither of those things. He did as Solomon wrote, he took the heart of the most powerful man on the planet and he turned his heart like the rivers of water. And for whatever reason, God whispered into the ear of Caesar Augustus one night and said, you should count your people. And Caesar thought it was his own creativity, his own genius. But little did he know that he was putty in the hands of providence that would set in motion the series of events that would usher in what we call Christmas. And Luke wraps it all up and he says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. But the angel came to them and said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, good news. And let me just say this. If you grew up in church, if you were exposed to faith early on, or maybe it's somewhere in your early adult life, or maybe somewhere in college, or or maybe even in high school, you decided, that you were gonna walk away from it because nothing sounded like good news. That first night, when Jesus was introduced to the world, the angels declared, I have good news for you. And if the church, if followers of Jesus, if what we have to share with the world ever stops to sound like good news, then we have stopped sharing the message of Jesus. And I think there's so many of us When we think of the message of Jesus, at some points in our life, it never sounded very much like good news. But when we get it right, when we tell it right, it's good news. That the first night that Jesus was born, God decided to send an announcement team to a group of shepherds, a group of men that had been excommunicated by religion. The temple had told these men, There's no place for you in God's kingdom. You're unclean, you're dirty, you're bad. So you do what you do because God is not necessarily interested in people like you. So people like you shouldn't necessarily be interested in God. And for a group of people who had been told, you're not good enough, you're not welcome, you're labeled, isn't part of this thing with God. What you do for a living, it's not welcome here. Who you are has disqualified you. That was the shepherds. And the angels showed up that night and says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. No exceptions, no exemptions. That God loves Jew and God loves Gentile and God loves man and God loves woman and God loves you no matter your label and God loves you no matter your story and God loves you no matter what you did at 16, no matter what you did in college, no matter what you did last night. God loves you just as you are. He has always loved you. He loves you right now and he will never stop loving you. He sent his son to prove that he loves you and he did for you what you and I could never do for ourselves he made it possible that we could have a relationship with god he rescued us from the power of sin and death good news of great joy that shall be for all the people because today in the town of david a savior has been born to you he is the messiah he is the lord and that is the good news of christmas he's our savior He is God for us. That God is for you. God's not against you. And no matter what someone told you once upon a time, standing up in a pulpit with a Bible in their hand, God is not angry with you. God loves you. And God is inviting you back into his family. He's not angry. He loves you. He wants to be the one that you are confident that you are absolutely sure that no matter what, he is for you because he loves you. He's our savior. He's God for us. He is Messiah, a reminder that God is over us. In the Old Testament, the only people that were ever anointed, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one, the only people ever anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus, is all three to us he is our prophet to which they said of jesus no one has ever spoke like this man this man speaks as one who has authority and not as the scribes and the pharisees peter said where else can we go for you alone have the words of life he is our prophet he is our priest And as our priest, he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice to God. And now, as our great high priest, he sits at the right hand of the Father and he prays for you and for me. And he is king, king over all kings. One day he'll be king over all the earth, but until then he wants to be king in your heart and in your life. And he is Lord, he is God with us. And that's the good news of Christmas. That no matter what's going on in your life, he is with you. In the pain of this Christmas, he is with you. In the disappointment of what's gone on this year, he's with you. In the loneliness that you know He is with you. In all the pain, in all the betrayal, in all of what felt like heavy darkness, He is with you. And even when it seems as though He is missing, somewhere in the shadows, somewhere in what seems to be the blackest darkness, He is working. And every promise that He has made to you and He has made to me, He will keep it. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. That is to say that if God kept his promise of Christmas, there is not one single promise that God will leave unfulfilled. John, looking back on Christmas, one of the followers of Jesus from the very beginning, he framed it this way. He says, that night in Bethlehem, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision and he saw the glory of God leave the Jewish temple. That it left over the doorposts It went outside of the temple, up over the Mount of Olives, and the glory of God disappeared into the horizon. When the nation of Israel came back under the decree of King Cyrus, they rebuilt the temple, but there was no record of God's glory ever coming back. But that night, in a little village of Bethlehem, the dark, chilly hills of Judea. The glory of God came back to Israel and God had kept his promise. And here we are today, believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We have been blessed by one man, Abraham, because of one of his descendants, Jesus Christ. They waited for him for thousands of years And on this side of Christmas, we hold on to the greatest promise yet to be fulfilled, that he will come again. And he will be king over the earth. But until then, until then, we will wait. Until then, we will long and we will look And when it's hardest to believe that he's coming again, we will hold on to hope against hope. We will believe even when it's difficult to believe. And when it seems so unlikely that there could ever be a promise that could be true like that, we will be determined to be the remnant that in our generation will look for the return of our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, because as sure as he came the first time, he will come the second time. Until then, we pray, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for how the story played out over thousands of years. And what seems like a neat little story to us on this side of Christmas, it was messy, it was complicated, it was dramatic in real time. It was difficult to believe. But God, we believe that you sent your son. And we believe that he died for us on the cross. And we believe that he was buried and raised from the dead. And that he ascended back to the Father. And that one day he is coming back. We hold on to that hope. In Jesus' name.